five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. So, asteroid mining. Do I really need to say anything else to get you excited and curious about listening to this episode? Somehow I don't think so. My guest is Matt Gialic, the co-founder and CEO of Astroforge, an LA-based startup. Over a decade on from when the last asteroid mining company started, Astroforge successfully raised a sizable seed round last year. So asteroid mining is back. Hear all about it. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help, expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, space enthusiast, time for another episode of the space business podcast. This should be an exciting episode because we're going to be speaking about asteroid mining. Well, of course, all of the episodes are exciting, but I'm personally excited about asteroid mining. And so I'm really happy to have Matt Gialich here, who is a co-founder and CEO of Astroforge. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great. And so, I mean, even though I kind of gave away the most important part that you know, companies about asteroid mining, why, why don't you go ahead as usual anyway and give us please the elevator pitch on the company? Yeah, I think what's important about Astroforge is what really our mission is, right? Our mission is to make critical resources accessible on Earth and we're going to accomplish that by mining asteroids. And so define critical resources because different people may have different views of what constitutes a, constitutes a critical resource, right? Yeah, so the, the number one resource that we are starting off with is the platinum group metals, right? The, mm -hmm. the six elements that are used in a of uh, various different things that you use every day, right? They're used in making chips in your cell phone. Um, they're used to treat cancers and chemotherapy. Um, and they're also used in things to reduce emissions like the catalytic converter on your car. Is there a kind of resources that are critical for our way of life? And the reality is, is we are running out of them at a rapid rate. And so for, for those of us, um, this is it's a non-technical podcast, right? Trying to reach more people outside the space industry and all the good stuff who are not experts in uh, metallurgy. I don't even know how to pronounce that. I think it's metallurgy. Um, could you just quickly run through like which are the member metals of the platinum groups metals? I mean, plat platinum is kind of in the name, but which one are the other ones? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So the platinum group metals consist of platinum, palladium, um, rhodium, ruthenium, iridium, mm -hmm. and osmium. So after I say those six, I'm sure everybody listening has only heard of maybe one or two of those because they're not yep. common metals you hear about every day. 
right? Uh, uh, keep in mind, most of these are used in industrial applications. These are not metals that are really stored as a unit of wealth or are worn on your body as jewelry, except for platinum. Most of these are used as a commodity that we need to produce things that allow our way of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you sort of, you mentioned before, like a minute ago, so that like we're, we're running out. So with, with many things, I mean, those metals obviously, you know, mined, I don't know if it's like deep mines, or open pit mines, but it, it doesn't matter. So sometimes or many times before materials, right, when we say something is running out, it's sort of like, oh, it's running out, but it's sort of like at what, what kind of cost that one is willing to pay to extract it, is it running out, right? And it's, it may be running out at one level of cost, but it may still be available at like, you know, some other level of cost, but which may be very high because maybe it's the bottom of the ocean or or something like that, right? And so one question, of course, would be like, what are you, what are you guys are proposing? And you know, we'll talk about the economics a bit more, like astro money. That on the surface it sounds very expensive. So is it really running out to that level on Earth that there is nothing else, like not a place on Earth yet, like left we should go to before we go to space? So it's always. Uh... The myriad of different factors that that come aboard here like you're talking about there is ore deposits that get weaker and have lower and lower mm -hmm. concentrations as we go forward that are deeper in the earth that will take longer to mine that won't have as good as throughput that will drive the price up there's a ton of different economic factors that always are going to factor into any kind of mining that you're looking at on the earth the big difference here that i want to really point out is the pollution caused by this mining the mining of pgms mm -hmm. and really the mining of any metal that is a low concentration metal are, are very destructive to the environment, right? You know, PGM mining itself produces almost, um, it produces 60 million tons of CO2 a year, right? This is a mm. massive amount of carbon being pumped into our atmosphere. And that's not even talking about the water waste that's left over or what are called tailings in the mining industry, the environmental mm -hmm. destruction, or just the giant hole you leave in the ground from doing these types of mining, right? So what we're really looking for in the future is, Right now, the cost of these metals are high enough where it is actually 100% uh, closes from a business case perspective to go mine these off world. And that business case just gets better and better as the concentrations and the level of ore qualities continue to get lower on the earth. Mm -hmm. Just for background, where are sort of the main deposits of those metals on earth? Yeah, most of them are in South Africa uh, or in parts of Russia are really where the main deposits are. But the largest uh, platinum mm. mine is in South Africa. Okay, so so I mean, you mentioned Russia there, so I guess that's another element, right? That some of these critical raw materials may be, yeah, located, um, you know, in countries which are at least currently uh, adversaries or strategic competitors. One hundred percent. And I mean, in the United States, we see this. At least I see this as a major problem going forward. I mean, the United States has less than two point five percent of the world's platinum group metal reserves. Uh, if we cut off trade, right, our way of life in the United States ceases to exist in ten months. And uh, I don't think people realize that this is how dire the situation is when it comes to platinum group metal resource allocation. It's not something that that's evidently clear here in the United States. Uh, but it's a big problem that faces us going forward. I'm not sure about the the every country in Europe, right? But this is a huge problem in America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so let's let's take a step back. And so, how did you guys? Can you talk a little bit about your own background, your co-founder's background, and how did you guys wake up and like decide like, okay, let's let's start an asteroid mining company? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll sum this up with me and my my co-founder's background. Is I spent a number of years at a company called Virgin Orbit, building the Launcher One launch vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, Jose mm -hmm. spent a number of years at SpaceX, uh, building the Falcon Nine launch vehicle, and we were a big part of, I think, this revolution you saw in the launch industry in the last decade. Um, me and Jose actually both left our companies respectively and went to a startup at the time called Bird Rides, which was a scooter company, because I think we just got a little 
bored with rockets. Like after you build them a lot and you're kind of going to production, they don't become as fun from an engineering standpoint. So we went for a new challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think anytime you go somewhere a little different, you realize how much you truly love space. At least we did. Right. And so me and Jose actually started talking about this company or what this company would become way back when we were building scooters at Burn. And really this came out of our, our want to one day go be, uh, go work at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. They're the part of NASA that does a lot of the deep space missions, right? They do the the Mars mm-hmm. landers, the Europa Clipper missions. Um, but we didn't want to go work for a government agency, right? We didn't want to, we wanted to have the excitement without the overhead. And that's really the idea that Astro Forge was born out of. What can you do in deep space? If you can look at this in the way of low cost building spacecraft, you know, similar to how SpaceX looked at rockets in the early 2000s, if we look at deep spacecraft the same way, how much cheaper can they actually be? How much lower can we bring mm. that price down? How much more risk can we accept to go do this? Um, and that's really what born the idea of Astroforge. Before we delve a little bit deeper into that, which is a super interesting question, did you, I mean, as you guys were brainstorming, was there some other sort of interesting options you guys came across and sort of like, you know, a second or third best that you discarded uh, in favor of the asteroid mining? They were, they were terrible. Um, that's the honest truth here, right? My <laughs> options were terrible. And I went over them with Jose and he rightfully so was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. I had ideas anywhere from like selling ads on deep space missions to, you know, just things that like looking back on it were, were just terrible. And I mean, that's what's really fun about the brainstorming part of a company when you're that early in the inception, like you can think about anything. It doesn't mean they're good ideas. And plenty of these were bad ideas. I think that when we started to investigate the idea of mining, and we really realized how big of a problem our resource utilization was on Earth and how this was only going to increase in the coming years. I came to the conclusion that whether it's us or somebody else, asteroid mining is going to happen. It's going to have to happen to maintain our way of life um, across the board. We're going to have to figure this out. Let's go try to be the first ones to do it. So so as you guys, well, so, okay, so you guys decided you're going to do asteroid mining, right? Okay, so I got to ask at least a couple of questions and probably a lot more about this at this point. So... One is you guys are both basically, if I'm correctly, my background, aerospace engineers, right? Both of you built built rockets, so you you didn't have a mining background. What what do you guys do? You guys like start reading up a bunch of stuff on mining? Did you consult experts or how sort of what was your educational process? Yeah, number one was go call everybody we know that's ever done mining and ask them about this, right? Including calling some of the big mining companies and just saying like, how do you do this? Give us the 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 overview of how this happens. Um, and yeah. through that, we actually found out that there was a physicist um, based out of a university here in the United States um, that had investigated doing this in a vacuum before. And so we drove mm-hmm. over. We had a lot of conversations with him in the before we even officially launched the company saying, like, how would we do this? Kind of going over just the raw physics of how this could potentially work, what the power usage would be, how much it would cost, what the size would be. Um And working with that physicist, we kind of came up with a theory for how we would go about this. And then from there, it was all about hiring the best talent we could to see that device all the way through. And um, essentially, that white paper is what is going up into space uh, on Transporter 7. Excellent. And so before we talk about that and the specific tech, so you mentioned calling mining companies. How how was that experience? I mean, were they like, you know, who are you crazy space people or were they like receptive or was it was it a mix? You know, we called a lot of them and it was a mix across the board. Some of them were like, hey, fly out and come visit us. We'll, we'll spend all day with you, giving you a tour. Some of them were like, um, you're wasting my time. I'm going to hang up on you. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it was kind of across the board. But, you know, really, when you approach a community, um, the mining community or the science community with this idea, the reception has been overwhelmingly positive. People understand mm-hmm. it's hard. They understand it's challenging. But I think people that are really working on this or, or working in these fields realize that it's possible. 
Um, there's no fundamental, you know, there's no fundamental limitations of physics to make this happen. Um, we can do it. And they've been more than helpful across the board and in, in every aspect of this company. Mm -hmm. And so the other question, of course, that, that that's natural to ask by anybody who has sort of followed the space industry a little bit. So once you guys decide you want to ask for mining is like, okay, you guys are evidently aware of um, deep space industries, DSI and, and planetary resources attempt like about, I guess that's almost 10 years ago, right? Um, thereabouts, almost a decade ago. And of course, both companies sort of on the surface got acquired, but I mean, they, they really, I think, got acquired for like pennies on the dollar, just, you know, in order not to fail. So how did you guys think about those historical examples when you made your decision to go ahead and, you know, and I'm sure you read up on it and sort of like, what, so what were some, you know, lessons you took from that and how did you incorporate, you know, those, those tangible existing historical experiences into your, into your own decision-making and company building? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so DSI and NPR, both of them, right, were, were, were both companies that started about, I believe, 2008 or 2009, and we're trying to do the same thing across the board. We've talked to multiple engineers and founders of both of those companies, um, and they've been hugely helpful in the formation of this company. We have a, a, I would say, a different theory on how we're going to go about this. We're going over some different materials. We're thinking about this a lot differently than they were. Um, I think that there's nothing wrong with the approach that Planetary Resources or DSI was taking. I think the problem was their timing. Um, and at the time mm. they launched the company, the cost to get to space, specifically the cost to get outside of Earth's gravity well, was exponentially higher than it is today. And the fact that, you know, we have announced that we are doing a mission that will go to deep space in October. And to do that mission, we were able to purchase a rideshare slot to the moon to go do that mission um, as a startup mm -hmm. at our size. That was not available to either of those companies 10 years ago. Um, in fact, for them to get outside of Earth's gravity well, they would have had to been on a large rocket like a Delta IV or an Atlas V. And those are mm -hmm. cost prohibitive, right? If we were in that same boat, um, doesn't really matter how good our tech is or how good our theory is. The initial cost to get outside of Earth's gravity well is just way too high for us to actually try it. Yeah. So I guess right now, and you're going up a transport emission, right? So that's like, um, I think, I don't know, it's the old pricing, the new pricing, the new pricing is like, from memory, $6,500. A kilogram, right? Then you're saying you're hitching a ride all the way to the moon. May yeah, I so ask how much are you? Yeah. What does so, the so what is the what does the mission the the mission look like? So you're going are you actually going to a lunar orbit and then go from there, or what are you guys? What are you guys actually doing? Exactly. We're leaving from Earth. We're going into a lunar orbit, and then we're launching from our lunar orbit out to the asteroid. And that's what we're going to be doing for the mission number two that we are taking on. Right. Our goal there is to take high resolution images of the asteroid that we are targeting. Uh, we want to confirm that the asteroid is the type of asteroid we think it is, and it has the surface that we think it has in preparation for our landing attempt on that asteroid. Okay. And so never mind sort of rideshare costs having come down and, and there's available rideshare to the moon sort of in the, in the let's call it the old paradigm, which um, I guess the only people who flew missions actually have flown missions like that is basically space agencies, right? So if one thinks about... And I know these are not really fully comparable. It's just the best ones that spring to my mind. Something like Hayabusa, I think in the hundreds of millions of dollars of mission cost. I think Osiris Rex, which personally I love as a mission. I think that's over a billion dollars. Um, obviously, that's a sample return mission, but that's what you guys ultimately want to, want to do, obviously. And then uh, the Psyche, Psyche, another NASA mission, which I actually don't remember the cost. I'm just guessing that's probably several orders of magnitude as well. You you guys are obviously, I'm assuming, trying to do this much, much, much cheaper. I'm assuming your mission doesn't cost hundred hundreds of millions of dollars. So like, where do you guys, how are you guys able to save the money? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the way we're able to save the money is a couple things. Number one is uh, we're taking advantage of the space ecosystem that's been created over the last 10 years. We can go buy a lot of these components. We don't have to bring on the large engineering teams to go engineer these. Number two is look at the the, the missions like Osiris Rex, Hayabusa, um, the DART mission, the Psyche mission. The science instrumentation that is on these vehicles is very, very heavy, which increases their weight, which mm. increases their fuel load. And these kind of things all go together to make those vehicles much, much bigger than we need. We're not a science mission. We are a company. We are a business. And because of that, we do not need to have that overhead of all of the testing equipment to figure out things that, you know, I think are very interesting to the science community are not super interesting to us. So our goal is to keep these vehicles very, very small, very, very light. So they're cheaper slots on rockets. They require less fuel to get there. And their real focus is just to focus on doing the mining on the asteroid. And that is it. That is how we're thinking about that very differently. How big is your, I, I guess the, the the thing that's going to fly later this year, that maybe a, a demo spacecraft, I'm assuming. But so, so anyway, how big is that spacecraft and how big do you envision you are? What do you want to call it, your production spacecraft to be? Yeah, so the demo spacecraft is going to be a 100-kilogram vehicle that will, again, leave mm -hmm. from TLI and go out to the asteroid um, and take the images. As we go for the landing mission and the actual mining mission, those vehicles are going to essentially double in size. Okay, it's still not very big, I, I think. So, so. And then how much would you be able to take back in, in terms of payload? Yeah, we'd be able to take back about one metric ton in payload back from each one of those missions. Okay, so the vehicle is 200 kilograms, but it can take a, a metric ton. So I guess it has, and um, what kind of propulsion are you guys gonna have on that? So right now we are using the Dawn uh, chemical propulsion system. That is what we are using. We're using their B1 thrusters to do this. Um, mm -hmm. But as always, you know, one of the biggest optimizations we have as a company is Delta V, right? So we're going to be continuously looking at other ways to do propulsion, other types of engines that are coming available. There's a myriad of new space companies trying out different tech here. Uh, a lot of it is very, very promising. So we know what closes with the current tech that is available that we are flying now. But we're always keeping our eye on the future and seeing what else we can access and where else we can go as these new thrusters come online. Instead of talking about that, I guess the broader question is sort of like on the on the technology stack that you need. I mean, right now, do you have everything available in the technology stack that you need to ultimately do this? Or is there something that you think is still missing or the TIL is still too low? I mean, it seems like you guys always need to be able to like go to an asteroid, you know, sort of uh, approach it, um, do your thing, come back. I mean, again, these extremely expensive missions have done that. But then on the other hand, sometimes we still seem to be able to like, sorry, sometimes we still seem to have problems, you know, doing docking just in, in Earth orbit and like lots of people are working on that. Um, yeah, short question. Do you guys think every part of the tax stack you need is available? Yeah, we do. We don't think we need anything else to make this happen. Now, obviously, we have some algorithmic problems we need to figure out. We have some theories here on how this would work that are very kind of proprietary to the company as we go forward. Um, we hope that these are not going to be problems, and we hope these are going to be easy solution to, the, to those problems in deep space. Anybody that's worked in space is going to tell you, this is really, really hard, right? And, and there's going to be failures that we're going to have as a company. We are going to make mistakes. And we constantly have our eye on each one of these missions, have multiple objectives we're going for, multiple things we want to confirm, uh, multiple tests that we're trying to do. And um, we're a company that is kind of built on accepting failure and seeing how we can still progress the company at every step of the road. It doesn't imply that uh, if you accept failure that you'd be willing and I guess also capable and planning to be capable financially also to like run iterations on these missions, sort of like you run a first demo mission, something failed in the tax stack, like, you know, whatever, you, you didn't approach the asteroid correctly or something. You will try to go out basically as soon as possible again and 
try again. Absolutely. You know, our model at this company is speed is everything. And that's what we're doing. We're going extremely fast. I think that's showing by our milestones and how quickly we went from kind of, you know, we went from an idea of starting the company to being on top of a Falcon 9 in 15 months. Um, I think that's blistering fast for a space startup and we continue to maintain that speed we're able to maintain that speed because we're taking additional risk and that is how we will run the company right we will take additional risk and we will try um and we will see what happens um that's the only way we're going to be successful at this at this point in time and so if i heard correctly the the mission objectives for the first mission is basically to be able to get to that asteroid take some pictures to confirm you know certain characteristics of the asteroids and, and that's it right that's not it. We are also testing our hardware in deep space, right? We need to make sure that this can handle the radiation environment that we see. So we're going to continue this mission for upwards of two years. We also want to verify the ground communication for deep space. I mean, keep in mind, we're doing this commercially. We're not doing this with DSN, doing this with the ESA network. Um, we need to make sure we can get those data rates. And the bigger thing is we need to understand the lifetime of our imagers. That's probably actually the biggest test of this mission is while we are going out there, there's a lot of problems you have with imagers. This is why deep space imagers cost a lot of money. Um, if anybody's ever got quotes on them, they're not the cheapest thing in the world, right? And they require, you know, lenses darken, things happen. We need to really classify that on our exact imagers and make sure that those are going to work for the longer missions in the future. Okay. And then, so what is the sort of timeline or the sequence of missions after that? And so, for example, when would you guys look to actually start, you know, ex trying to extract or trying to process what, whatever you want to call it, some material, even if you don't bring it back yet? which I assume is like yet another step. Yeah, so internally we have very detailed timeline of when we expect these missions to have, what rockets they're on, et cetera, et cetera. We haven't released it publicly yet. I guess what I'm comfortable with sharing is that, you know, we do plan on bringing back our first uh, metric ton of PGMs by the end of this decade. So to give you a sense here, that's that's less than seven years before we will be bringing back the full load um, on our current roadmap. Yeah, and you mentioned, and so I guess somewhere in the middle there is the sort of like testing the extraction, again, or processing, whatever you want to call it, technology without bringing something back. And you mentioned before, you know, you're talking to a physicist and there was some some interesting technology there. Is that is that sort of like a key part of your technology stack, the, the extraction technology? Absolutely. What we call the refinery is really what this company is built around, right? We're buying rockets. We're buying the vehicles that are going to go out there. We're really working on the imagers, how the hell we get there, and the refinery. And that's one of the biggest things that we're working on at the company that we do 24-7. I mean, we have a full team here that is dedicated to optimizing, figuring out the constraints, and making that refinery more and more efficient. And is there anything you can tell us a little bit more about the refinery? So, so I mean, there's an asteroid, right? It's basically a rock. And I guess there's different types of asteroids, right? But so, so, so this is by definition metallic, but I think some are more tight, tighter bound, some has gravitational fields, some basically have no perceptible gravitational field. Can you just give us a little bit more of a sense of like, you know, um, sort of what a mission of that looks like? So you approach an asteroid, what, what happens? Do you, do, do you land? Do you not have to land? How do you how do you get to the materials? How do you get to extract them? To the extent you can talk about it, of course. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, um, we're going after what are called the M-type asteroids, right? These are essentially balls of iron that float around in space. That's what we're going after. So, what we are going to do is we're going to approach the asteroid. Um, these are small asteroids. These aren't planet-sized asteroids, right? So, there's really no gravity. These are really held together, either you know, in the case of Bennu, by static electricity, um, or in the case of some other ones, they're just fully cohesive, right? They're solid pieces of iron that are floating around in space. We land on them or dock with them, whatever you want to call it, because you really can't, you know, it's mm -hmm. not landing in the way that you would think of landing on another on another yeah. body. Um, and we do a technique of direct surface refining. So we, our refinery can directly attach to the surface, start refining that iron into the PGMs. Uh, we'll collect that up. 
we'll leave the asteroid and we'll come back on, on very much a deep space return trajectory like it's been used a myriad of different times to return samples back. That's how we'll do it. And so, and so okay, you take in basically the, the, the basic material of the asteroid, you somehow, let's call it, for the lack of a better term I can think of, filter out the PGM stuff you're interested in, you throw out the rest, right? And, and that's it. And that, so I'm, I'm by no stretch of the imagination a mining expert, but so somehow intuitively, this seems to me like something that could require a reasonable amount of power. So what do the power budgets on these missions look like? And you know, is, is that something that I'm sure you guys obviously have to think about it. And is that something that's easily within you know feasible ranges? Or is there something again that's you know where you need to like do to do more work or improve TILs? So. 100 percent Yeah, power is kind of the main driving factor of how much we can refine and how long we need to stay on that asteroid to collect the amount of, of material we want to bring back, right? Um, that is what we are 100 percent optimizing for right now when it comes to the refinery. We have a clear roadmap of how to do this. We believe the power can be very, very low. We've done the initial demonstrations that we can get this power to a very low level. Um, now we got to go build it up. So without giving away like a TRL level or what we think we are, we've proved the concept. Now it's time to go actually build the concept and show that it can fly as in, you know, a refinery number two to our refinery that's currently on top of the Falcon 9. Okay. And then so can you give us an idea also like these asteroids, the types you're looking for? For example, the first one you were going to like, you, how far is this from Earth? We're going to M-type asteroids, right? So these are those metallic asteroids. About 5% of all asteroids are believed to be these M-type asteroids. It's the same type that the Psyche mission is going to. Psyche is going to an asteroid called Psyche 16, right? Mm -hmm. one, I believe it's about 1.5 kilometers diameter is Psyche 16. That's what it is going to. Um, we're going to a very similar style asteroid. We're just going to one that's a little bit closer. So we're going again after these near-Earth asteroids. They're going to be anywhere from 50 million to 100 million miles away from Earth when we go to them. I think the better way to think about this is how long they take to go to and come back. We really want mm -hmm, to constrain mm -hmm. our missions to two years. And that's how we're thinking about it. And that's how all our trajectories show right now. So there will be less than two years to get out to the asteroid and return. Yeah, because that's like a distance that's like uh, similar to like Mars at close approach, right? It's, it's, it's significant. I don't know what Mars at close approach. I, I think it's going to be a little bit farther, but um, I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So then hence the, the two-year timeframes with like available, you know, chemical propulsion, at least for the moment. And I mean, do you see, I mean, you, you mentioned a 200 kilogram spacecraft, but you see like, you know, if everything goes well, do you see that scaling up over time and sort of like, you know, as we kind of like another 10 years on, we like, we, we have much bigger vehicles, maybe like something like, I don't know, nuclear thermal comes online or I, I don't know. Is that like a longer, longer, longer term? Yeah, there's a ton of really promising uh, tech that that's coming out, right? That we'll see how it develops. And I mean, that's the great thing about this company is we're not beholden to any of it. We're not relying on Starship coming online or some nuclear power generation happening or really anything mm. other than what we have today. All of those things are just going to make our business case better, make the vehicles cheaper, make the amount we can bring back larger and uh, continues to let us iterate how to think about it. So, you know, there's a lot of promising tech. I can't really, with a straight face, answer the question if the vehicle is going to get bigger, if it's going to bring back more per load. There's a lot of things that go into it, mm -hmm. including the risk posture we have for every vehicle. Keep in mind, these are not going to be 100% reliable spacecraft. That is intentional. We want mm -hmm. to keep the cost low, and we want to be able to accept failure. So if all of a sudden we go to a four-ton vehicle and it costs a billion dollars to launch, you're probably not going to send that with a 90% chance of success, right? Um, so you know, it all weighs into that equation. And so I know this is a very difficult question, but so from where you guys sit today, I mean, obviously you had to think through the, you know, the unit economics of the business to sort of convince investors this all makes sense at some point in time. And as very often, it may, it may be the case that it doesn't make sense this year, but kind of there has to be sort of a horizon where, you know, it makes economic sense. So do you guys have a notion of like, um, you know, 
if this all works the way you envision what the cost per whatever you use kilogram or metric ton of platinum delivered to earth would be and how i mean and how that compares to the current market price yes we do um i i won't go into details on the specifics of the number but i will say that mm -hmm. there is a a gigantic healthy margin on the amount that we can bring back compared to the market price so we believe that this is a um you know a technology that if we can prove it if we can do it has a huge margin in the long term as we go forward and i mean whenever you start a deep tech company that's how you have to think about this right if you start a deep tech company and tell people like oh uh, it's going to be one-to-one, -one, probably not a great deep tech company. We have mm. to have huge margins if we're successful. The risk of this company is we have a lot to technically prove to show that we can be successful. And that's what we're really laser focused on. And how do you guys, um, so so common question that comes up, has come up for years with regard to Astro Binance, because if, if this does work, right, you know, it's not enough to compare it to the current market price, right? Because if you're not careful and you increase the supply too much, of course, the price may crater. How are you guys are thinking about sort of like, you know, making sure the supply doesn't expand too much and you don't actually impact the price too much. Yeah, I mean, when we talked about it, keep in mind the size of the vehicles we said and how much we're bringing back. That is a little tiny drop in the bucket of the platinum group metal market, right? That metal is estimated to be about $60 billion consumed per year. It's about 19 million ounces that we're bringing in and consuming of this. Um, we're bringing back nowhere near that much. So we can start talking about the elasticity of these metals and kind of what that means and how much margin there is there on price and, and when these kind of inflection points happen. The reality is we're not gonna be anywhere close to that on, on one or two missions. And yeah, at some point, if we're doing a thousand missions a year, we will start to affect it. The reality is at the point we're doing a thousand missions a year, um, I'm going to go hire somebody who's really good at the economics of metal and understands this a lot better yeah. than I do and uh, help us figure that out. You know, I think that would be a good problem to have that we can destroy the market for platinum. We're nowhere near that right now. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, as, as sometimes happens, it, it may even that like, you know, other use cases come come up, other demand cases, right? If the price drops uh, far, uh, you know, far enough that people say like, okay, now we're now we actually able to use platinum or osmonium or whatever, like for this use case, which previously it was too expensive for you know, I love to use the, the example of aluminum, right? We we put aluminum on top of the statue of Abraham Lincoln here in the United States because it was such a rare metal in the early 1900s. Yeah. Yes. And now you like use it to wrap your half-eaten sandwich, right? Um, and if something like that happens with platinum or one of the platinum group metals, or we can advance our quality of life with it, uh, I'm going to chalk that up as a huge success. And uh, that would be an awesome day. Yeah, exactly. This is actually, I, I don't know, I mean, we get to the science fiction part, but if you if you watch Star Trek, right, they have this whole thing, the, the most valuable thing is latinum, right? And it's like suspended in gold, and then they make it clear that the gold is actually really cheap and isn't worth anything. It's just the latinum, because it's fictional, which is inside the gold that's worth something. <laughs> So there you, go. you know, you, you never know um, what the future is going to hold on the metal markets. And we've seen this change multiple times over the centuries. And, you know, hopefully we can be that next inflection point. And in, in terms of business models, I mean, so far, you know, we've been we've, we've been talking and sort of I've implicitly assumed, OK, you guys are sort of like the, the like you built a vehicle, you developed the tech, but you're also like the operators, right? Sort of like you're you're basically like the mine. The Astrofer is also a mining company, but it doesn't have to be that way. It could be that you guys develop the tech and then like, you know, there's obviously very significant, big existing mining companies on Earth, and they could come to you guys and say, like, great guys, like, you know, I want to I want to lease your your vehicles and just do everything, um, you know, ourselves as the mining company. Are you guys, is there a specific business model approach you guys are pursuing? Or is it too early to tell? Or are you just kind of generally open to everything? I mean, you know, like any company, we're, we're going to have conversations and we're going to socialize these ideas and kind of determine at the time if they make sense or not. I can't directly comment on any of these going forward other than saying like, 
we're always going to be open to every kind of idea that people have. And that's our job as, as me and Jose as the founders to really weed through the noise and determine what is value added and what is not as we go forward. Um, I will say this, the, the way that we mine on earth is very, very different than we are proposing to mine in space. There's actually no similarities really whatsoever, right? We're not doing story pit mm. mining. We're not bringing up these giant pools of leaching material or anything like this, because it's simply not viable to do. Uh, we have to come up with a different way to do it. We also think the concentrations here are vastly different than they are on earth. The regolith of the asteroid is vastly different than how we mine on earth. So there's really not a lot of similarities other than the end product, which is the platinum group metals. Yeah. And in terms of, um, so one aspect we haven't talked about is sort of the regulatory aspect, right? There's obviously some existing, um, but let's call it like regulatory, but also sort of a um, geopolitical, I guess, environment, right? I guess they're two, two distinct things, but they're connected. So from a regulatory point of view, there's some existing, um, of course, treaties like the Outer Space Treaty. Um, there's some newer stuff like the Artemis uh, Accords, which of course more lunar related. How you, what kind of regulatory framework you guys believe you're operating in and is there any sort of like remaining risks or uncertainties um, that you think should be cleared up? I think if I told you there was no risk of uncertainty, I would be lying. Um, the reality is we don't know. And as we go forward to this kind of new industry and we really start to make strides at going to the asteroid and, and really doing this, and I think going farther than anybody's gone before, people are going to want to regulate this industry. We are having conversations now to understand what that may become in the future. And we don't believe that any of it affects us today. In fact, in the United States, we have the 2015 Space Act that clearly says a commercial company can mine asteroids. I mean, it's as clear as day, which is great to start with, but it's a starting point. Um, we have some, some lawyers that are very, very helpful in trying to understand this landscape and help us understand what we may run into, what we not, how to avoid some of the pitfalls. And that's how we're looking at it right now. But um, you know, time will tell what happens here. And I think with any new industry, right, as you start to grow and you start to become successful and you really start to hit those missions, um, look at the airline industry, right? It, when it started to really hit mass, it needed to be regulated. And, and that will happen in this industry at some point. And we're going to work with mm -hmm. the regulators to make sure that's fair for everybody and that uh, it's it's able to be a successful business at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's the regulatory side. And on the geopolitical side, I mean, is there, I mean, some of these materials, as, as we said at the beginning, there's to some extent can be considered like strategic resources, right? If you go out to space, is there like a, I'm just going to assume there's a, like a large enough number of these type M asteroids you mentioned around, or is there sort of any point of any sort of risk at some point in time that like, you know, American company is going to clash with like Chinese companies wanting to go to the same specific body? The reality is I haven't done enough investigation here to know. Is there a risk that America and China will crash, clash over an asteroid to be mined? Probably we seem to clash over everything, right, as we go forward. Mm. So, you know, who knows? But I think predicting the future here is really, really hard. Um, I'll put it to you this way. There's proposed to be over 10 million of these asteroids that we classify as near-Earth objects. Um, so it's not like these are rare things in the universe. We know where they are. We know how they exist. Um, these aren't things. So there's pl a plethora of them out there to go to. I can't really... You know, I don't even know how to talk about the future of the geopolitical conflict other than we're so focused on mining asteroids. I'm, I'm not paying attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, fair enough. Fair enough. And so from the, um, well, one thing you guys do have to focus, be focused on some, to some extent is sort of the funding side of things, right? Because again, this, even though you're lowering costs a lot, this is still like, you know, said you, you're probably going to bring back your, your first, you know, materials by the end of the decade, right? So that's quite a few years out. You have several two missions to do on, um, on the way you, you just did re raise a, you know, reasonably significant seed round, at least, you know, size-wise for, for a seed round. But I assume there's a, quite a few more rounds to come, right? So if you can talk about where do you see like the total funding need for this company? 
Yeah, I mean, we see the total funding name at being uh, total funding to be, I think, much much lower than than people would expect. This will be, you know, way way less than than a billion dollars to complete our missions mm-hmm. all the way through, including to become a profitable company as we see it going forward. Um, I'm not really comfortable commenting on all of the funding we've had so far. We have, you know, we have some great investors behind us that have been super supportive and have been very helpful as we go forward. And uh, when you start a company like this, you have to have investors that are going to back you through good times and through bad times. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it turns out. Yeah, they, I mean, whatever. they really have to be aligned with the with the vision here because it's a little bit of a longer term vision. And also, I mean, even I mean, as, as you know, I besides doing podcasts, I also run a space VC fund. Right. And so a regular fund lifetime is 10 years. And, you know, there may be an exit. I mean, there may not be an exit, right? So you have to be comfortable with longer term timeframes. Yeah, so, but speaking of timeframes, sort of like, you know, pick pick a timeframe that makes sense to you, whether that's 10 years or 15 or 20 or 50 years, like where, where would you like to see the company? Like, where, where, where would you like it to go? Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, I would like to be, I would like to really remove mining off world, you know, 28% of our carbon emissions are from mining of the earth. Now, a lot of that is for things that are going to be not viable to bring back from space or not profitable, don't get me wrong, but we eventually need to move these dirty, um, heavy industries off earth at some point to be successful. And if we can really be the ones that show this is doable, and this is accessible, um, I think the future can really allow us to be not only save our own planet, but also exist on other planets. This is kind of a critical step in that infrastructure chain that's needed. Mm-hmm. And so on, on that journey, where do you see like the biggest risks or is there anything that's keeping you up at night or that you're thinking more about sort of? Um... Yeah. I mean, when you start an asteroid mining company, you don't sleep a lot, right? That's for sure. Uh, there's a lot of risks to this, right? And there's a lot of things that we have to overcome and challenges. And I think most of those challenges um, aren't aren't far in the future. They're now. We have to build spacecraft now. We have to show we can get to the asteroid now. We have to make sure our images are going to work at the price point we need to hit now. And those are very, very hard milestones to hit and things that, you know, we're, we're building the best team we can. We think we have a great team here that can pull this off. We got to make sure we can pull it off and we got to prove to the world that we can do this. We can get to the asteroids and we can go farther than anybody's ever gone before. How big is your team now? 17. We're at, we're at a team of 17. Um, we will keep this company relatively small. You know, we're not in the business of growing our headcount to to extremely large numbers. Like almost everybody yeah. here is a physicist or an engineer. Um, and that's intentional. It goes after solving our critical problem, which is, can we build the technology to pull this off? And and what is sort of the, the main thing you guys are focused on? Is it, I assume it's the first mission, basically, making sure that works right. I mean, so the, 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 no, it's really the second mission now because the first mission is already on top of the rocket. So fingers crossed it already works and has yeah. been tested, right? Yeah. It's really that deep space like, mission. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're focused on, like I said, there's really two key aspects the team is focused on. Number one is making sure we can get to those asteroids. That's the imagers, that's the algorithms to do it. That's the deep space navigation, how we're going to do the thrusters, you know, all that kind of GNC that needs to go into making sure this works. Then yeah. the number two is the team that is focused on that refinery and making sure we can get the throughputs we need, the powers where it needs to be, the concentrations are where they need to be, right? And really, really making sure that is a robust piece of equipment as we go forward. And by the way, that refinery, is that something where you can do any testing on Earth or is it something that has to be, for example, in microgravity? Yeah, we can test it on Earth for sure. I mean, the first iteration of it, we have fully tested in a thermal vacuum chamber here on Earth. We think we've characterized it very well. we are. We do not believe that there's actually any difference with it being in zero G or not zero G in the way we're demonstrating this refinery. But like everybody that goes to space, sometimes you find out stuff you didn't know. And for us, for, for me and Jose, it was very important that we are a space company. We go to space. That's why we hit this so quickly. We need to make sure that this thing can work in zero G and that we're not wrong on that aspect of it. So that's what we'll test in, in the next month. Yeah. Uh, 
beyond sort of the platinum group medals in the long, long-term plan of the company, is there something else you think you guys will eventually be mining that you think is interesting? Uh, so for sure, there's other things we will be mining. What they are, I think, is a little bit uh, up in the air. For instance, you know, I'd love to mine gold. Uh, I just don't have any evidence there's a solid gold asteroid out there that we can go mine, right? And until we have that, we don't mm. think gold is at a concentration that's really higher than at Earth. So we would just, you know, why not just go mine gold here? It's a lot cheaper. Um, some of the other metals we're looking at and trying to understand and trying to characterize, you know, we did publish a paper with the Colorado School of Mines where we're looking at meteorites that have hit the Earth mm -hmm. and understanding what the distribution of platinum group metals looks like and what their concentrations are. And that's how we have a lot mm -hmm. of the evidence for what we're going after and what type we're going after. Um, we've done that with a couple other metals. We just haven't published the results yet. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm probably asking to like segue into my uh, usual last question about science fiction, right? Because there's a lot of these like made up materials that, that get mined to basically power warp drives and stuff. <laughs> so, talking about um, talking about science fiction, um, which is our traditional last question, like what I'm assuming you like science fiction, um, and, and if so, Absolutely. what I mean, kind of who, science fiction? Who doesn't, right? I mean, I, I love science well, we, fiction. We, we, had two, we had two or three people, two or three guests who actually like, yeah, no, no, don't really like it. <laughs> Which, of course, obviously leaves me like in a sort of like position where I, I don't know what to say next. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy you do. <laughs> so some, no, you some know, of your favorites, like movies, books, TV series. You know, I'm, I'm very much, look, at the end of the day, when I'm done working here, like the last thing I want to do is read more. So usually it's a TV series or a movie that I'm going after and watching. You know, I love the early yeah. part of like The Expanse. I thought that was a really awesome series. Um, yeah. You know, it kind of like died out a little bit for me at the end. It became a little too dramatic instead of scientific. Probably got more viewers, but for me, it lost a little bit of its luster. But like things like that, I, I really love. I really love these science fiction shows that try to incorporate kind of a realistic approach to it. They may have a... a, a a power source or an energy source that's unlimited or whatever, but trying to keep the kind of physics of it alive is always interesting to me and cool. Yeah, so certainly a great fan of the expanse and, and that obviously takes place substantially in the asteroid belt. So, you know, minor activities going on and uh, very interesting also from, I mean, the, 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 the tech, the science part seems well done, but also the, um, the societal part, right? The political part is very interesting. And then I, now that I think about it, actually, yeah, there's, there's mining and a few other, um, science fiction works right now. I just remember the, the original Total Recall, right? They have like huge mining operations uh, on Mars, <laughs> which hopefully someday we're like, you know, maybe we'll get to something like that. Maybe not on Mars and some other body. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot out there on it too, or, yeah, or the book Delta V, if you've read it. Um about asteroid mining, you know, and I think people are definitely thinking about this. Look, we're not we're not coming up with a novel idea here. We're not doing something new. This has been talked about in science fiction for a long time. We're just hopeful that we can really take that science fiction, anchor it in physics, and really pull it off. Great. And I think that's that, that's a great closing statement. So asteroid mining seems hopefully to be around the corner. Best of luck to you guys. Best of luck with the current mission, with the next mission. And yeah, certainly want to live in the future, like you said, where we can do some of this really dirty stuff off Earth. So good luck to you guys. Awesome. Well, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, 
or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.